Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Boutique. Good to be back after a little hiatus in the past month. Uh, just taking care of some health-related issues and uh, getting some R&R, but it's good to be back. It's been, it's been a really intense and stressful time for everybody. And um, we've been definitely still working behind the scenes quite a bit here at Progressives Abroad to uh, support and address a lot of the ongoing um, situations with the demonstrations uh, that have been occurring in the United States and internationally as it's related to the uh, horrible murder of George Floyd and again the kind of surgence of the Black Lives Matter movement so we're definitely in solidarity with all that and uh, we'll be uh, breaking that down and keeping you up to date on our thoughts of the interesting interviews and pertinent information about that. But the most important thing that we're trying to keep up to date right now is our ability to be allies and stand in solidarity with um, movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, knocking down police brutality and institutional and systemic racism in the United States and also throughout the world. So there's some ways that we're doing that. Um, <clears throat> for example, if you've seen on our page recently, we've had some online events, some musical events through uh, Open Mic, our other channel, uh, raising money for the, the, the bail project in the United States. Um, as well, um, we're gonna continue to uh, raise up certain artists and other organizations that we know who are using whatever skills they possibly can to um, help in any possible way, whether it's financially or through you know, services that they can offer free of charge, anything like that. So please, if you're not already following our page on Facebook or our page on our account on Twitter, please go find us, Progressives Abroad Podcast over there on Facebook um, and also on Twitter. Now, on with the show for today. So today, we raise the question, what is it like to be reporting abroad? We hear a lot about it in the news, especially nowadays, journalists and journalism news has found itself to be in a precarious position between the truth and research and investigation and certain entities, namely um, President of the United States and other global leaders who have kind of latched onto this idea of fake news. And we've got a good friend at the show, his name's Zach Bennett. He has been published, he's a journalist, a mixed media, we could say journalist. Uh, he's been published in the Wall Street Journal, he's been published in Vice, Huffington Post, um, as well as he's the regional chair of the National uh, Press Photographers Association, I think down in South Florida, if I got it right. I know he's based in Miami, Florida right now, but he's lived all around the world, including in the South America and the Middle East, and currently his area of uh, specialty is kind of uh, Latin America, as well as the, the South and throughout the United States and the Caribbean. So um, we spoke with Zach uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, actually uh, to give a little 
historic to give a little context on the timing uh just a little bit before um the uh, murder of George Floyd. So unfortunately, we didn't get to touch on that and the the aspect of uh, reporting these kinds of um, these kinds of uh, issues in journalism, as well as reporting these kinds of issues, social justice issues, as well as reporting in uh, demonstrations uh, and whatnot. But we'll get onto that in a further episode. Um, but what we did touch on in this part one of this of this uh, interview is uh, basically we're going to talk a lot about reporting abroad. Um, also the ideas of, uh, you know, you know, local reporting versus sending foreign reporters to different places and how it is to be a, f a reporter going, a foreign reporter going to report in an area and how to represent that. And we're going to touch a lot on Zach's um, journey and work and reporting at the migrant caravan. He spent quite a bit of time with the migrant caravan up coming through Central America and up through Mexico. So he's got some interesting stuff to tell us about that. It's a really cool interview. I had a great time recording it and talking about it. It's so interesting. And uh, I already know we'll have him back on the show again. Uh, but without further ado, everybody, please enjoy part one of this interview with journalist Zach Bennett. See you on the other side. World. I'd like to welcome our good friend of the show, Zach Bennett, to the show. Thanks for coming on the show today. How are you doing? Where are you right now? Good. I'm, I'm in Miami Beach, and thanks for having me. Miami Beach. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fan of the show. Yeah, no, yeah. Fan of the show, good friend of the show. Thanks for coming on. So you are a photojournalist. What, what is the difference between like a what makes a photojournalist a photojournalist? What's the difference between a journalist and a photojournalist? Well, a journalist is uh, like an umbrella. So you got, um, you got, um, you got writers, you got videographers, you got on-camera talent, you have um, photographers, you have all kinds of journalists. So a photojournalist is just one kind of journalist that that reports via visuals uh, generally, but um, but I, I kind of do, I guess, more like mixed media where I do writing and photography and teaching and videography, drone. I do a little bit of everything and incorporate graphics and all kinds of stuff to tell the story or make the story complete. Yeah. And so I've been following your work for a long time. And the reason why I was, I've been trying to get you on the show for a while is because uh, although right now you're currently based in Miami, from what I understand, you've lived in a lot of different places around the world. And I've seen your photos throughout the years. I think I've been following your work at least for the past decade now. And I mean, I just, I love your photography. You take some really, uh, and, and I might share some of this in the, in, the, in the links below. You take some really great, like kind of personal photos, portraits of people in different moments, random moments, crucial moments, uh, emotional moments, just uh, so really amazing artwork. And I'll definitely try to um, share that. But you've also done it all around the world. So you've had a lot of experience um, covering disasters, covering special events, meeting with uh, politicians, uh, famous people, 
in all kinds of places. Can you just give us an idea of some of the places around the world you've been reporting? Yeah, so I, I started my like international reporting in Brazil. Um, but since then, I, I reported extensively in, in Israel and in Palestine um, in South America, I was in South America for three years reporting and just recent, more recently, I, I ended up in Miami, but now I still, because Miami's proximity to the Caribbean and Latin America, I'm able to, to report here in Florida, which is a, a really crazy place to be a reporter and also can easily get down to the Caribbean if there's any problems or disasters or anything that happens. People go missing. Um, they send someone like me from a, a close place like Miami to go figure out what happened or what is happening on the ground in those places. So even though I'm not reporting abroad anymore, I, I mean, I'm able to go abroad, uh, you know, almost monthly, I would say, or, or a dozen times a year, sometimes more. Um, but yeah, about 50% of the time I'm on the road, just, uh, doing stories about anything my editors tell me or something I pitch. And um, yeah, so I've, I've been around, uh, probably reported in about 35 countries, maybe a little more. So do you have, uh, I mean, okay, do you have like a particular motivation behind this or like what first got you into taking pictures? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I got into pictures when I was a kid, but, but I, I mostly got into it because I, I saw a lot of, you know, stories around the world that I knew about that I, I researched on my own and I realized, you know, they were underreported. So the original like motive in getting into journalism or reporting was to, to tell stories that are untold or, or expose information or promote more transparency. Um, as you get you know, working as a journalist, you, you end up reporting on all kinds of things, anything from sensational news to, to, you know, giant natural, natural disasters and terrorist attacks. But, um, but obviously the, the original point in getting into journalism is to, is to share, you know, stories that need to be told that that's your hope as a journalist is to, to tell those stories. But that's, that's obviously not every day of, of work, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, the 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 taking of the photo is it sounds to me it's kind of a commodifiable skill, uh, whereas uh, you know of course it's it's just like any other art form. Kind of the the architects really would like to build their dream buildings, but of course they have to do kind of the dirty work too. You know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I do I do see it as an art form. So, or that's what I consider. I always consider myself as an artist, even even if I'm shooting something really remedial and boring, <laughs> I still try to try to find the, the art in that. Yeah. So just, just out of curiosity, um, do you have, uh, do you have, do you see any, now that you've lived abroad and you've worked abroad and now you've like moved back to the States and now you're working there, but still kind of going abroad sometimes, do you see any, difference between like in working and doing your job when you were living abroad as opposed to now living back in your home country and then going abroad is there do you prefer one of these types of situations yeah i think after i i was reporting abroad for maybe 
like almost like the past decade of my life I was abroad and now I'm I'm kind of where I came from in Miami and um, it's it's definitely different to report abroad while living in the United States but it's 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 a lot more comfortable to to be able to go out and get the news and retract and kind of like a snake Um, but there there is nothing that compares to having a, a reporter in a place like say Israel or Palestine and they're reporting on the on the news while they're there because you get like an unparalleled understanding of the situation or having a local report on the news is always uh, the best option, you know, to have someone that actually lives there to report. But that's that's not always so easy for publications to to find people in, in every location that they can rely on to report the news honestly, um, accurately, et cetera. Yeah, that was actually something that I was very, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was thinking about asking a little bit later, but you know, now that you bring it up, you know, there's this idea where you have the reporter, which I guess is kind of what, what you do, you, have, you, you report, you, you live in one place and you kind of are sent off by different publications to go report around the world. Uh, I guess your region is around Miami, that kind of area of the Caribbean and whatnot, but yeah. Have you seen any like shift in that in more recent times? You know, is there any regard in the industry for trying to raise up more local reporters rather than send out reporters to different places? Is there have you seen anything like that happening? Because it seems like it would make sense, but um, like an effort to to not send reporters as much and use local reporters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of efforts like that. And publications like really just don't have the money anymore to send. Even the biggest publications in the world, they don't have the money anymore to send reporters everywhere and, you know, fly and stay in hotels. It's it's not sustainable. Um, but it, it's kind of like a Band-Aid to send a reporter somewhere that to tell the news. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of efforts to, to try to get citizens more involved with the news reporting and the news cycle. Um, and I've, I've been a part of that in the past where, you know, we've tried to start agencies where we use local, local photographers and local writers to tell the news in their neighborhood. And I worked when I was just saying that because when I worked at Demotics News, we, um, the idea was to like have locals report the news and it's a lot more cost effective and they have local knowledge of um, what they're reporting on because a lot of times you send a journalist into you know, a random country and you tell them to get a story and you give them one week to get the story and how are you supposed to learn a culture and learn how society works and the politics, uh, just being in a place for a few days, you can, you can barely even like scratch the surface. Yeah. It's kind of like this old, old idea when you read a lot of the, the early, you know, ethnographic field work and anthropology, you read all these stories about, you know, kind of, yeah, Eurocentric, you know, colonialist kind of perspective on it. So, I mean, do you have any experience with that? You know, what is it like to go report for a small amount of time in a place that you've never been before, but still try to represent it in kind of an ethical way? Do you, do you find some uh, challenges with that? Or have you developed some kind of uh techniques uh, or abilities with this yeah i guess the the big obstacle with reporting is a lot of the time um 
you know, you have to under report, like you might go to a place and find out all kinds of information, expose all kinds of details, but you actually can't report everything you find. Um, because it, it wouldn't be ethical to, to, to just make like blank, like wide umbrella blanketed statements about uh, a situation. So a lot of the reporting you see abroad or about a situation or a conflict is pretty surface level. Like if you look at any conflict around the world where we send a, a reporter from a major Western publication, um, you're probably getting a pretty surface level report unless they're spending tons of money and sending investigative reporters on the scene. Um, yeah, you. I mean, the only way to get, you know, the down and dirty deep news is to to look, check the local publications, and a lot of times those are in like the local language too. So, when I get sent down to the Caribbean or something, I have to read every single little newspaper as soon as I get there, and a lot of the time translation is a problem. Or some of these islands or countries have their own languages and they have small populations, so it's hard to even, you know, translate the language, but. But yeah, so most, most of the reporting we do is, I would say, pretty surface level um, when they're just sending a journalist abroad. Hmm, that's interesting. So it's almost, it, it almost kind of sounds, uh, it, it, on, the, on the surface level, it sounds almost like some kind of photo elicitation technique. Like, I take this photo, I'm going to show it to you guys. What do you think about this? And then there's just a little title. But of course, it's like the old saying, there's a... Uh, a picture has a thousand words. So, yeah, and and nowadays people are gonna kind of draw their own conclusions based on your photos too. So, um, you have to be really careful. How much? I'm just curious because I know you know when you're doing um, like you know ethnographic research, um, you usually I'm 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 losing my key terms right now. But usually, if you're gonna enter like a new culture that you're trying to do research on or report on write about you're usually going to find uh like a primary source or somebody that's like the gatekeeper into the community of course this is yeah. stuff that takes a long time if you're doing like deep investigations and you're getting embedded and whatnot but uh do yeah you find yourself <clears throat> relying on such kinds of sources oh yeah of course um yeah, like your, your social collateral in reporting or the people you know is, is how you get your stories. And even abroad, as soon as I get on the ground, I start writing, you know, local radio reporters, local news reporters. And generally, they're really eager to work with foreign journalists or to show you around or to tell you, tell you what they know. Um, sometimes they're protective with their information because they have a scoop, you know, and they might not want to share the scoop. But I'd say nine times out of 10, as soon as I get to a country, I just start reaching out to other journalists and they're, they're the ones that can kind of help you construct uh, the story. And then, and, but then you ask yourself, why, why aren't these people just telling the story to the world? But it's because they actually don't have uh, the outlet or the capacity to tell the story to the world. They just, they work for, I don't know, a local, a local publish, uh, publication, Santo Domingo and, you know, only, people in that city or that island read it, but those people have the most information about what's happening. Um, so, yeah. So, so um, what kind of, I mean, 
when you've been in some of more in more recent times, maybe what kind of issues have you been reporting on in and, and just describe a little bit about the, the general region that you've been reporting on in the past couple of years. So, yeah, I've been uh, just been reporting in Miami, Florida, southeastern United States, anywhere from the Carolinas uh, to Alabama, down to Miami in the Keys, the Florida Keys. And then we go all the way down into South America for reporting um, from here, which is it's kind of crazy to think about. You like you would think um, major publications would have more resources in, in those places, but really they're relying on just a few people to get the, get the stories out. And then there, there are people like me that are kind of, you know, on the run, moving very fast, um, you know, and scrambling to get a story on a somewhat tight deadline. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say resources are, are quite low, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's interesting though, how you, uh, like how you break it down because yeah, I mean, because at first I, I was kind of thinking, yeah, okay, so if there's all these, you know, small reporters everywhere in all these different countries, why would they send someone like you all the way from like, you know, the United States or somewhere to go down and get it, you know, but it's not really necessarily from this kind of, no longer at least from this kind of like outsider colonialist kind of perspective. But it, to me, it sounds like you are, you know, representing this publication and kind of sent there to exactly do that like collect these resources from like local yeah exactly yeah Yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it because you can send someone like me down there and and yeah the publication trusts me to to find the right people to get the right story um but yeah there's there's really no way to do it on your own or quick you like you definitely need to you're always asking for favors and help from others um but yeah, like one, one example of that is I know the, the New York Times has uh, a Metro desk and on the Metro desk in a city like New York, you, it's a big Spanish speaking city, you know, and they have, I believe, two Spanish speaking reporters on the Metro desk. And then when I was in Mexico reporting for uh, reporting on the migrant caravan that was coming up from Central America, you know, headed for the U.S. border from Mexico. When I was there, I, I ran into the Metro desk reporter that speaks Spanish. So one of their two Spanish speaking reporters on the Metro desk, which is the desk that generally covers um, the city, you know, like city, city reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- she was down there, too. And so it, it, that kind of shows how, like, the, the newspapers are, you know, using their resources and sending people to different places. Um, uh, and maybe it's an issue that that reporter was passionate about or or maybe it's just you know who they had available to go down to mexico for a couple weeks to to tell that story so that's interesting let's dive a little deeper into that example so you were when was that with the migrant caravan that was about what was that about a year ago this story was happening i think it was two years ago now when it was a more popular story or like a more red story, like it was like two to three years ago, starting mm-hmm. about starting maybe two and a half years ago. And what was that like? So you get the call, got to go down and they give you this big task, right? Go down. What was it? What, what was the yeah, task? Yeah, well, it's crazy. Now a lot of our reporting is based on things like the president says in the United States, whatever Trump says. And 
you know, he tweets and then people start getting interested in the story and no one, the migrant caravan has been happening for years, you know, mm. maybe, maybe more than a decade. Um, and no one cared about the migrant caravan before this. They were doing it every single year, bringing, you know, hundreds, thousands of people from, you know, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, um, up through Mexico. And it's the same organization that's been doing it. Um, but then two years ago, when uh, they were coming up, Trump started tweeting about it quite a bit. And um, no one was reporting on it at that point. It was just some kind of passive crossing of people or migration. And then a BuzzFeed reporter, very like ad hoc, like reporter on its own was down there with them. And uh, he, he was reporting a little bit about it. So Trump got really excited and said he talked to the president of Mexico and that they were dispersing the migrant caravan and that the United States is safe. And, you know, these, these, um, these you know, poor people are not going to be coming to our border anymore. So he kind of said it as like a braggadocious statement. And so when he tweeted that, my editors read it up in, up in New York and they were like, hey, Zach, can you go, uh, they sent an, a reporter and I, they said like, can you go figure out, you know, if that's true? Did he really disperse the, the migrant caravan? And so I started just chatting with uh, the guy from BuzzFeed and he wasn't actually with like following the migrant caravan. He just had some knowledge of the migrant caravan and had been with them for a few days. And uh, I believe I'm not, I'm not totally sure on his story, but he wasn't present when I got there. So we just started looking on Twitter and we found their location uh, and we weren't even sure if they were actually there. And so we just flew into Santa Cruz, rented a car, drove like seven hours and I was just looking on Twitter while my reporter was driving and we, we seemed to find their location. And as far as we knew from Trump's tweets was that the migrant caravan had been dispersed and they didn't, ex they didn't exist anymore. And, and so then we, we pulled up to this, uh, what was it like a outside stadium, gymnasium playground, uh, in, uh, I forget the name of the town, but it's somewhere in Southern Mexico. And uh, of course the migrant caravan was still there. So, um, and there was over a thousand people there, you know, just kind of ref in a refugee field situation. And, and we just started like flying the drone and interviewing people. And we immediately found like the head of the organization, which is the group called Pueblo Sin Fronteras. And um, we got interviews with him and we interviewed the people. We found a lot of like transgender people that had been victims. So I did, we did like a quick portrait series on those people that had just been like particularly targeted by gangs and mafia in Central America because they're, they're a more vulnerable population. Um, so we kind of zoned in on them. And then um, we got some really, you know, bombshell stories out of it and pretty much proved that the the president didn't disperse the migrant caravan. The migrant caravan was still there and still strong and still planning to head north to the border. So then we just stuck with him for a few days. And then more or less a media frenzy started in, in that situation. And um, then within a month, I think every single publication was down in Mexico. And I got sent back there twice. Um, 
to report on it more and more at the border. And then again, it all comes down to Trump's tweets. Like Trump tweeted um, that there were, I forget if he said Taliban or some terrorist organization was spotted inside the, the migrant caravan. So immediately my editor was like, can you, can you go find out if that's true? So we were back down to Mexico and we flew into Tapachula, which is right on the border of Guatemala. That's like the big like passing city. You'll find all kinds of people there. Um, you'll find all, all kinds of people from, you know, uh, Africa um, and uh, even Asia. You find a lot of like Indians there, like wow. people straight from India. They just, they all come to Tapachula and then they make their way up north. Or they, they some of them want to stay in Mexico too, because Mexico uh, is also a land of opportunity for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, we went back to Tapachula and we, we, you know, we tried to find out if this statement was true by the president because um, it seemed like he's just trying to fear monger. And we found out, you know, they were most likely, uh, I believe they're ba two Bangladeshi people that were somehow spotted in like a Telemundo report. And uh, as far as we know, Trump just, or, you know, the, the, they, the, the White House just kind of labeled them as uh, Arabs or terrorists or or something that would you know potentially spark fear in people, and if if you go to Tapachula, you see every language written on walls and signs and restaurants because it is like an international crossing. So it's like no surprise that that he saw two you know dark skinned people that he that that the you know the executive branch labeled as terrorists for some reason mm. or. But yeah, if you go to Tapachula today or tomorrow or a year ago, you're going to see Bangladeshis, Indians, Arabs, uh, you know, people from everywhere. See people from all over Africa speaking, you know, 20 different languages. And they all have their restaurants there, too. So it's not like a secret or something. And they have hostels for certain groups of people. Like you'll see, you know, the there's a, one hostel that all the Pakistanis stay in. And then there's another hostel where all the Indians stay in and they actually serve Indian food and they have it's like a very uh culturally diverse city so that was the second time we went down there what uh what is the attraction to that city is it how does how does everybody end up there did you find that out well yeah they're coming through there's there i don't quote me but there's certain countries in south america that are more lenient with visas like bolivia and i believe they can accept people from all over the world much easier so mm if a person does eventually want to end up in the United States, they can fly into a country like Bolivia and mm -hmm. then make their way to Central America. And if they make it to Tapachula, Mexico, there's an immigration office there. And they can get papers to stay for a month or six months. I mean, some of them can get papers to work and they can, you know, plead political asylum and different things like that. And then you can make a, you can try to make a life in Mexico, which I saw a lot of people struggling trying to do that. Um, and then you can try to get up to the United States as well and, and check in with the immigration office at the border or find a way to cross the border. Um, but you're, you're much closer to where you want to be there. Um, <clears throat> the, the other thing the, the U.S. was trying to say was that it was a lot of gang members coming from Central America. Like, yeah, that's right. Uh, so we looked into that too. And, and the thing is, is in, in a lot of these Central American countries, 
gang being involved in the gang is almost inevitable like you meet children like i met you know youths in tapachula that told me they had been involved in gangs or they were ran errands for gangs and they really had no choice uh to do that they were they were um basically just very impoverished kids and the gang members kind of tell them they're going to work for them and if they don't then you know they're pretty much dead so it's not like these kids coming up across the border are necessarily dangerous or violent gang members conspiring to you know take over the country they're just people like fleeing violence and and a lot of them have uh the you know the wounds to, sh to show it you know i saw people with you know wounds in their head and their face and all over their body and stab wounds and they're telling me you know this is this is what i'm trying to get away from i'm not trying to to like make a branch of my gang in the united states they're literally they had no option where they lived in their in their in their um uh in their little towns so see now this is and this is this is i would say for the most part should be obvious to a lot of people you would assume that if somebody is gonna take all this time and all this effort to leave their home and walk two thousand miles or whatever to a place where they don't have no security and no guarantee of ability to stay there, that they're probably leaving for a good reason um they have no resources to go and invade or take over another country or something like that it's totally yeah crazy. like so you're down there and i mean i've seen your articles and i mean I, yeah i'd say a lot of the time it it is very just like this is what's happening you know but what why do you think that narrative doesn't really make it into a lot of the mainstream media because you would think any decent person sitting at home if they heard that story about these you know 17 year olds that yeah they were in a gang but now they want to get out of it and they're the best way they can figure out how to do that is just you know hop on hop on the the trail and start walking mm -hmm. uh why do you think that that narrative that that headline never really i never see that headline too much yeah so well for, first of all like these these kids like they they just don't have a choice so i don't i wouldn't even consider them gang members or yeah. you know a lot of them are from MS-13, which is considered a really dangerous gang across the Western world. Mm -hmm. But, but, um, but yeah, I wouldn't even consider them gang members. They're victims of their their impoverished scenarios in their countries, which you yes. know they were born into. But um, the 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 information's out there. But it, I think overall, we're you know the U.S. Uh, historically speaking is afraid of you know foreigners and they think they're trouble yeah people are just worried about letting more people into the country you know and i think it's like you can read the story that mm -hmm. tells how the situation is and have compassion empathy for others yeah. in, in countries next door but um but people often choose to to just say no you know like just shut the door on it it's like voluntary ignorance so i think a lot of people have chosen that path and and that is an easier path, you know. It allows you to not think about it as much. It allows it gives you an answer, an all-encompassing answer. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that's uh yeah. Because I'm just thinking. I mean, of course, um, I feel like I kind of know the answer to this because it's not a sensational enough headline. But I mean, would it? Wouldn't it? Would it? 
what what if we lived in a world where there was a headline that said like you know uh youths who were you know victimized youths you know flee to safety to the united states i mean you don't see headlines like that (laughs) yeah yeah because they are victims and they're children a lot of them like the at least the one i did a story on one kid that was i believe 16 he was an ms 13 and this kid was sweet he was harmless i could i could you know he was just like a, a tiny little kid, you know, he looked like a child to me. Mm. And I understand any, anybody can be dangerous, but this, this kid was fleeing, you know, something he was a victim of. And when the country makes big sweeping statements saying, you know, the, the, the migrant caravans filled with rapists and murderers and gang members, they're lumping these kids who are actually victims into, into that statement. And and the thing is, the truth is, you know, I go down and ask these kids, oh, were you in MS-13? And they say, yeah, I was. So there's the, the tweets and the statements by the government aren't entirely wrong, but technically they're not, they're not telling the whole story. They're just giving like a sweeping statement about uh, these people. And then, yeah, and then in the same, on that, on that note, when Trump tweeted, you know, that you know, the, the migrant caravans filled with rapists and murderers and whatever and gang members. I, I was in the migrant caravan for uh, a couple weeks and I talked to as many people as possible. Literally the reporter and myself, as soon as he tweeted that, we started just going like up to every single person we had been talking to and interviewing more people. We maybe talked to a hundred people and those people all were with their families. So we could say we, we talked to a few hundred people inside the caravan of a couple thousand, like 2000. So we talked to a large percentage of those people and no one had heard of any, any violence inside the caravan. They actually told us they all felt safer inside the caravan. Usually when you travel through Mexico or Central America, you can get trafficked and taken by gangs and taken by, uh, you know, anybody and their bad motives. Um, but everyone I talked to in the migrant caravan, and I, I didn't even find one story uh, contradicting it, but, but everyone felt very safe in the caravan and they felt like they're helping each other and they felt like a big community. Um, so we found that statement to be untrue too, that, that, that it was filled with violence. And I always felt very safe inside the migrant caravan. And I, I don't think anyone that was actually present there doubted that. But, um, you know, that, that one tweet uh, changes everything, you know, and that's people don't have to read the news after they read that tweet. They just they made their mind up, you know, and they decided, you know, this caravan's bad and we already have our qualms about immigrants coming to the country and taking our jobs. So I think for most, you know, general Americans or at least I would say half the country, they, they made up their mind when they see tweets like that. They say, oh, well, there's you know, that's the icing on the cake for the scenario. You know, we're, we're, we're against immigration. We're against the migrant caravan. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just kind of phony when you, you know, you think of it from like a really wide perspective. Uh, And if you try to take that tweet or that headline and transfer it over to something else, like you don't ever, you, you never hear the headline, like there, there might be, you know, molesters and 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 rapists hanging out at the nickelback concert 
don't go there. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. your your local Walmart might be full of gang members and people toting guns. You know? It's very true. Yeah. <laughs> your yeah. local Walmart probably is. Yeah, yeah. I mean um, and yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks a lot, Zach Bennett, for coming in for an interview virtually here all the way from Miami, Florida. Um, like I said, we will be back with part two coming up very soon. I just wanted to break it up a little bit because we did cover a lot of topics in this interview. Um, super interesting. So just stay tuned to the channel. Like I said, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to uh, follow us and uh, the new next episode should be coming out in just a few days. I don't want to keep y'all waiting too long. Um, and the next episode also we're going to describe, we're going to talk a bit more about, um, yeah, what's it like to be a reporter on the ground uh, during the Trump administration here in the United States and how, you know, what is safety like and reporting during the coronavirus and the impact of citizen journalism so that should be a really nice episode too so looking forward to seeing y'all again quite soon hearing y'all having y'all to join us here on this progressives abroad podcast please feel free to like subscribe and all that jazz and we will see you real soon peace